Imaginary Conversations with the Late Romantics Lecture Series Anamika My dear students, Corona crisis seems to be playing the good old game statue with us. From a distance someone shouted statue and we all froze wherever, wherever we were. I'm so sorry for all of you because the poets you were going to meet this month would have taken you on an exciting journey. Two of them, Byron and Shelley, were great travelers in their own right and Keats too was almost always on a mental journey in the realms of gold. One of the poems in your syllabus is called On Reading Chapman's Homer, where Keats highlights travel as a figure for reading and navigating on, as on a sea of literature. But we shall come to the poems later. Let me begin by sharing something strange with you. When the lockdown was declared and all kinds of instructions started floating in the air about the alternative ways of reaching out to you, I could almost hear Shelley whispering in my ears, Let me contact your students online. I shall speak with them directly. Let them ask me questions. I shall answer them. Even in my lifetime, I always walk the extra mile to contact people on my own through channels not yet explored. I was almost your age when I published that pamphlet. No, no, no. I was almost your student's age when I published that pamphlet on the need of atheism and pasted it on every door of the hostel. Then I penned a sonnet to a balloon laden with knowledge and floated actual balloons filled with knowledge in the form of radical pamphlets across the Irish Sea. In Dublin, I slipped such papers into the clock hoods of passing ladies. I also floated radical work down the Bristol Channel in bottles, and I wrote poems about what you may call broadcasting. Consider Ode to Westwind, for instance, where I pray that my words be scattered across the earth like seeds, ashes and sparks or, on, or like autumn leaves. Please note how I implore after every line, here or here. Let me please use your ID and address your students directly. Too overwhelmed to ask him anything, I handed over my mouse to him, which he examined intently. And take it from me, in a jiffy Shelley learnt all the tricks of the trade. The tricks even of hacking the computer for political goals. Only at that point I had to intervene and implore. Please take charge, but and do all the talking without swinging to extremes. My students will be more than happy in joining you, but making sure my students will be more than happy in joining you, 
online but make sure that your two friends byron and keats also appear online give them separate sessions now shelley wrote they both deserve more than they got at that end of the world you indians are supposed to be warm hosts in ode to the west wind i also refer to your indian gods who strike me as a pair of thesis antithesis destroyer and preserver india excited us all but we all died young wondering what to plan next how to reach out to lands unknown and mul- multitudes unheard as you can see for yourself dear students now that the younger romantics have taken this golden initiative my role as a teacher is pretty limited i shall just connect you to them feel free to ask them all kinds of questions ask them to deconstruct their own texts towards the end of your interactive sessions with them i can just do a bit of wrapping up over to shelly first i am sitting there in the corner watching it all with the eyes serene eyes of the wedding guest not in coleridge's ancient marina but in kabir dulha dulhan mil gaye phiki padi barat now that the bride and the groom are one they are together the marriage guests must subside in the dark now this darkness reminds me of something just bear this in mind that the romantics especially the later romantics made a great use of the interplay between binaries especially that of darkness and light enlightenment had highlighted just the light part of the story the rational and the logical explanation of the universe but the romantics cared also for the supra rational twilight zone keats refers to this chaos as parental darkness thou art not the beginning nor the end from chaos and parental darkness came light the first truths of that intensive broil now let's take a small pause here we met we the notion of shape coming forth from amorphous pretemporal darkness is there in indian metaphysics also we metaphorize this state of pretemporal parental darkness as mother kali and it is interesting to note that there is no creator not even a mind or will behind the creation beyond the darkness coupling with light but this is not so sudden in the pre-linguistic state of conception darkness emerges as some kind of a kora or the womb or kukshi as we call it in sanskrit 
at the very first stage of delivery the speech or words or nad brahma or primordial sound is wrapped in a self generated chaos chaos ceases when the moment is ripe and the moment is ripe for different people at different states of evolution in separate chunks of time the whole process is so beautifully captured in the fall of the hyperion where after a long period of confinement in the subconscious awakening saturn moans in exasperation but but cannot i create cannot i form cannot i fashion faith cannot i fashion forth deposed saturn in keats can easily be interpreted as a lapsed artist bereft and impotent darkness is the producer which together with light is essential for converting matter into light but most important of all all of parental dark out of parental darkness comes forth beauty because in the process of evolution form and shape are imposed on rough unformed matter as the artist to creates meaning and beauty from nothing a pure nothing his whole um, enormous matter is life the moment of ripeness of full realization of the potential is not to be achieved right away without suffering so buried in being buried in the darkness is important night for him is a beautiful womb an essential pause a meditative withdrawal from the haptic world of actuality with flowers at his feet the realm of the far more valid imagined or envisioned experience in revolt to islam shelley also counts the starless starlight of children the lamplight through the rafters and the green light that the trees radiate in the list of sounds and sights that nurse our spirits folded power the first thing that the younger romantics want us to realize is that the light of imagination does not transcend the solid things of the world nor does it strike them and bounce them off instead it gets us gets caught up in things it is intertwined with objects refracted and tinted tinted as starlight or green light it is spread through the wooden beams of the house and glows on the floors 
the phlox also assumes the quality of incarnated concrete light seeming to complete the series these younger romantics that you would be chatting with now are now like these shifting light are also like these shifting lights compelling but non authoritative the later romantics were global ecocentric pacifists in our sense of the term byron and shelley were radical soldiers of peace and keats despite his penury and poor health underlines poor health conditions paid ecocentric attention to nature and he was the one who made us see how beauty is truth truth beauty in indian poetics we had always imagined satyam as shivam and sundaram and vice versa sundaram as satyam and shivam but in the western poetics this poetics the thread of harmony principle or samarasya that runs between aesthetics and ethics was hardly noticed before the before keats in the song of earth 2000 beat reads keats keats's to autumn and collins coleridge's first frost at midnight in the light of historical weather con- accounts those reading examples of trying to see the ecosystem that surrounds the text are the most eloquent achievements of the ecocentric ecocriticism and then these later romantics were truly urban and their na- nature writing is a version of walter benjamin's flair a visitor or a tourist bringing a real urban sensibility to nature seeking fleeting moments of sensuous disorientation over a long period of time finally they arrive at the conclusions towards the end of the poems that ripeness is all and a state of thankfulness or ahobhav is the essence of being now over to shelly priyanshi good evening sir welcome to our class you too i suppose lived in a time of terror america and france had revolted the british establishment had denounced the french revolutions revolutionaries as terrorists and our teachers tells us and our teacher tells us that this in fact was the first usage of the word terrorist an oppressive counter revolution was in full swing in england double agents infiltrated 
radical organizations and try to undermine them from within. Your life of escape and exile enabled you to observe at close range the different classes at work and play in England, Ireland, Wales, France, Swift and Italy. Your radical cosmopolitanism is one thing that wins our heart. Research into your life reveals that there were many aspects to your being that underline you as our contemporary aspects like quasi-ecofeminist vegetarianism, anti-slavery, labor theories of value, philosophically, philosophical anarchism, technological futurism, gradual reformism, and even triumphalism. For Indian students like us, your self-effacing Tyagatapvritti also makes sense. Quite like our own Gautam Buddha, you were born into Raj Yoga. You were going to be an MP soon after your graduation. But then you wrote the pamphlet on the need of atheism, got expelled and set off on a larger quest. Shelley Come on friends, don't place me on a pedestal. I don't quite like theologies. Aman But the two odes you are going to talk about, sir, are so full of eologies. Shelley, ha ha, good point. So you were using the formal utterance as an invocation to bring me to the point. Okay, come to the point. Yes. The ode is basically ode is basically a dialectical form one that looks to resolution of contraries or at least some confident closure in its epode or synthesizing stanzas aditi quite like a debating club sir Yes, but the addressee here doesn't open his mouth even once. So it's more like a monologue. By way of addressing the grand figure, the poet is addressing the conflict of his mind. And by way, as he goes on talking to the addressee, gradually the conflict of his mind dissolves. And he comes to a point of precise resolution where he can implore for the exact line of action he is expecting of the addressee. At best, you could call the, this ode and a petition. Shelley, in all my odes, I, am, I undermine the odes consensual expectations by figuring first the process by which the skeptical mind establishes emblems 
of his desired other. It is for this reason that I begin the ode of intellectual beauty with a scene of obtrusive similes, all of which dignify things absent, shadow of the world that itself is posited as the insubstantial image of a power larger than life. The awful shadow of some unseen power visiting this various world with an inconstant wing as summonings that creeps from flower to flower. In the first first four lines, that intellectual beauty is compared to summer winds. In the very fifth line, it becomes moonbeams behind some pining mountain shower, visiting each human heart and count continents. once in a while, but with an inconstant glance. Why inconstant? Because the time is not yet ripe. We are not yet prepared. We can't contain right now all that will be showered upon us when we are mature enough to absorb it. Aditi, yes, I understand. What you mean, Sir Shelley? My grandma also says that Tripa Dishti of deities is always painted bunkim or slant till we are mature enough to soak the grace of in full glaze of the full glaze. Is intellectual beauty pragya or discerning wisdom, sir? Shelley. I'll come to that again. Let me finish what I was going to say. In the same paragraph, the three other similes I have placed for her. I have compared her first to the hues and harmonies of the evening, then to the clouds in starlit widely starlight widely spread and ultimately to the memory of music fled and can you say what is there common what is the common thread running through all the similes bird flying birds flying moonbeams hues and harmonies of the evening starlit clouds and fading music what is common to what is the common feature that binds them together can somebody tell me shakil one common feature that binds them together is fleetingness all of them in a way fly with inconstant wing shelley very good my boy you have caught the hint so overwhelmed I am with the fleetingness of this intellectual beauty that I get breathless. Almost in one breath, I compare her to this and that, not knowing where to stop. By the time I stop, she could be gone already. Who knows? 
Mansi, what exactly do you mean by intellectual beauty then? Who is she? The very coinage is so exhilarating for us girls. Two centuries have passed by Sir Shelley. People st- but people still st- people still don't associate beauty with intellect, despite the fact that both in India and in Greece, knowledge has been metaphorized not as a god but a goddess. In India, we have Saraswati as the goddess of learning, and in Greece, the Lord, uh, you, know, you know, we have Minerva. But in common imagination, knowledge and intellect fall in the male domain. But then you are different. Way back in the 19th century, you wrote the revolt of Islam. Can man be diff? And there you write, can man be free if woman be a slave? Shelley. Thank you, dear girl. Thank you. For me, intellectual beauty was just another name for creative inspiration that comes and goes in splashes. Not because she is inconstant, but because we are too turbulent to home her in. Turbulent waters can't hold the image of the moon intact. But only when our mind becomes as calm as a lake, it can hold the com- complete image of truth that the intellectual beauty casts on us. For us to work on it with our little imaginative tools and prepare little pocket editions or versions of our share of truth. Harsh, imagination again is such a tricky word. Could you cast some light on how you romantics visualize imagination? And how do you connect inspiration with imagination? Shelley, inspiration ignites imagination, which is an inherent property of mind that lies dormant unless inspiration ignites it. Priyanshi, oh God, this is so similar to the story of Sleeping Beauty. Mother read out to me when I was young. Only when the Prince Charming kissed, kisses her, she will dead awaken. Last week, when Mama was cleaning my old Almira, she found my book of fairy tales with that story of Sleeping Beauty in it. And do you know what she told me? She told me that in Indian knowledge system, there is a belief that right at our tailbone, there is an energy center called Mooladhar, where serpentine beauty, quite like Keats's Lamia, is sleeping coiled up. Only when we create a void inside us, by uncluttering our mind and body, by doing away with useless thoughts and passions, the blocks at other energy centers are removed and the passage is cleared for her gradual mounting up to her Prince Charming, her Shiva, her higher self, situated in Sahasrara.
another energy center at the middle of the vertex. Here too we need an outer stimulus in the form of your yogic breath that hits hard at the kundalini for it to start rising up to her prince charming. Mom told me all about it and today when I go home I am going to tell her about the similar bond between intellectual beauty and human imagination that you establish. Shelley, how lovely! All ancient civilizations have such cultural parallels. But in my part of the world, imagination was not rated so high till the 18th century. I mean it was not given the status of a sleeping beauty. Pre-enlightenment scholars said that the beauty of intellect lay just in mirroring the real, imitating the divine pattern as it is. There was no scope for imaginative variations than at least in classical literature. Neoclassical literature, only lunatics and lovers were considered imaginative. An overplus of imagination was discredited, discredited even in poets. Platonists saw our everyday world of the human senses as in a state of flux and therefore regarded it as uncertain and unrealizable as a source of truth. In contrast to the realm of idea where existence and truth are both permanent and absolute, and like Plato, he also said that it is the job of a poet to keep connected only to the divine realm of ideas without letting imagination tamper and intrude. By our time, the afterlife had ceased to be the major concern, the new source of inspiration being the divine immanence of nature. A poet was supposed to have the mystery, have to, was supposed to follow nature and decode the mystery of creation accordingly. Intellectual beauty, in fact, is the inspiration behind the idea of creation which nature ignites. You could also call it the blueprint print of a higher self that we visualize in the moments of celestial bliss. Wordsworth called the mo this, these moments the spots of time, the residual memory of which could keep you charged all through, though you may, be, may not be able to figure, out, figure it out in just one image. That's why I seem to be showering you with images one after another and I use similes instead of metaphors in order to highlight my state of uncertainty. In rejecting the equivalence of metaphor in favor of the obtrusiveness of the mere likeness proposed by a simile, I refuse the presumption of surely locating my spiritual anchor 
even while I advertise the frantic quality of the urge to do so. Not only does the inward-looking stance of my lyric positioning hail the worldliness of my concern, it in fact reinforces it. My self-reflexiveness is constantly questioning and checking the efficacy of my utterance. In fact, the lyric tension between desire and fulfillment is central is of central importance in my oaths. My oaths are neither escape nor panacea, as many critics may made them to be. All my lyrics rise to to the challenge of human affiliation with each other and with our outer respective pasts and with our own respective pasts. They take hold of the actual precisely by widening the old's grasp. They open to include the dialectical negotiations by which poetry comprehends the world. Adil. Let's now come back to the text of the Ode, sir. In the second stanza, you ask the spirit of beauty, that beaut- intellectual beauty, why she is so ephemeral. Shelley, very well visualized. We could feel this on our pulses, that the artist is not a craftsman, kind of an imitator of nature, but an inspired person who brings new worlds into being, spontaneously generating original creations out of the depths of his own mind. With Kant and German idealists, imagination became central to human understanding. And we also could see for ourselves that the very possibility of knowledge depends on the synthesizing power of imagination, which, some sub, which at some subconscious level orders and classifies our experience according to rules which exist in mind, independent of the eternal external world. Imagination is no longer a reproductive faculty which forms images from pre-existing phenomena, but a productive creative power ignited by the external stimulus of nature, which I prefer calling intellectual beauty. Once ignited, this imagination autonomously frames and constructs its own image of reality. As a messenger between sensation and reason, it translates sense impressions received from the outside world into mental images, and it does not do this mechanically. Quite capable it is of playing about with sense impressions, chopping them and combining them up to images even of non-existent things. Aditi. Uh, in the next three stanzas, the the in the next three stanzas are sim 
the next three stanzas are simpler sir where you yourself say that queries such as yours are never answered by any divine agency supernatural natural agencies are mind bubbles of saints and philosophers you say in stanza 4 and 5 you also refer to your childhood experience as to how in starlight night starlit night you tried to connect with ghosts spirits and angels in caves ruins and forests reciting all kinds of incantations but all in vain because they weren't answers your qu- queries were never answered and then when you lost hope in the course of a deep meditation during a cool spring dawn suddenly she appeared intellectual beauty bathing you in an exquisite and rapturous experience the way you talk about this experience my grandfather also talks about madhumati bhumika which throws yogis in a fit of ecstasy when the serpentine power hidden in our kundalini reaches the apex and excites the pituitary gland in the vortex to an extent that it starts raining amrit which quenches all kinds of desires and makes you one with what you call intellectual beauty sir shelly it's amazing that meeting you also has the special touch of that intellectual beauty which ignites not only imagination but also the deep layers of our racial memory shelly thank you dear girl you remind me of my daughter from my first marriage whom i lost when i was away lending the leading life the life of a your vagabond dreaming big dreams for the world she also was so full of queries and interesting observations aditi sorry to hear that sir we have read about your elopement with mary godwin whose frankenstein is there as a part of our gothic fiction course our teacher told us not to judge you for that because geniuses like you are a class apart and then you suffer so much for the small mistakes you make and then she you know my teacher also told us that you shared whatever little you had inherited from your grandfather with your ex-wife and was also cordial with us so we who don't hold anything against you but no one told you told us about your deep bonding with your daughter now i know why you say and talk about the gloom of loss and fleetingness so much shelly In stanza 3 I refer to life's unquest unquiet dream which is denied even a momentary glance of truth without the grace of intellectual beauty embedded in nature In stanza 4 I refer to her glorious train in which traveled hope love self esteem and other positive virtues which cast a deep impact on us 
by nourishing us with human sympathy. Like darkness to a dying flame, you say. Here again the archetype archetype of darkness as a negative force has been delicately challenged. Even darkness has a parental role to play. In it highlights absence of light and intensifies our quest for light without which death also is like life and fear remains a dark reality. All of us romantics are guided by this quest for the impossible. What is nature for Wordsworth is supernature for Coleridge, liberty for Byron, beauty for Keats and love for me. These are all absolutes, perfect peaks. This quest for the perfection naturally keeps us in a state of perpetual tension and agony. Because perfection stays only in the mind. It is just an idea which I address all through in the poem as intellectual beauty. Beauty it is because it is a quest for the impossible. It is not supposed to end and so imperfect we are in all our human foibles that we can't even hold that grand idea in our head for a long time. This is what I mean when I say in the penultimate stanza, penultimate stanza, with beating heart and streaming eyes even now, I call the phantoms of a thousand hours which don't respond. Priyanshi Faiz Ahmed Faiz, one of our major Urdu poets, has a beautiful line in Urdu. Umr bhar ek mulakat chali jati hai. A single glance, a single meeting lasts a whole lifetime. Beatrice's glimpse that Dante had lasted even beyond life. You don't believe in beyondness, but see for yourself how your glimpse not only of the intellectual beauty or the idea of a utopia lasted a whole lifetime and it also walked beyond life. Your texts are all now blessed with an afterlife which keeps us all inspired, raising so many cultural parallels at at every step. In In stanza five, for instance, you refer to your vision of the intellectual beauty in the unpolluted hours of the dawn. This also rings a bell. And we are suddenly reminded of what our parents refer to as Brahma Muhurta, the pious time around 4 p.m. when all the positive energies of the universe are supposed to reach out to us with the intensity of what you refer to as intellectual beauty. At that sweet time when wind are, winds are wooing, all vital things that wake to bring news of birds and blossoming, sudden thy shadow fell on me. I shrieked and clasped my hand in ecstasy. Shelley, morning shows the day children 
what I refer to in stanza 6 as my studious zeal and love's delight kept me on a perpetual quest and ultimately flowered in this petition to intellectual beauty that she keeps all the future aspirants and seekers of harmony and bliss charged with love for all mankind. Love alone can keep us joined, going, and let us hope against and lets us hope against hope. Should I call it a day now? See you tomorrow for my chit chat on the other two poems, O2, The West Wind and Ozymandias. Shelley very well visualized. We could feel this on our pulses that the artist is not a craftsman, kind of an imitator of nature, but an inspired person who brings new worlds into being, spontaneously generating original creations out of the depths of his own mind. With Kant and German idealists, imagination became central to human understanding. And we also could see for ourselves that the very possibility of knowledge depends on the synthesizing power of imagination, which, some sub, which at some subconscious level orders and classifies our experience according to rules which exist in mind, independent of the eternal external world. Imagination is no longer a reproductive faculty which forms images from pre-existing phenomena, but a productive creative power ignited by the external stimulus of nature, which I prefer calling intellectual beauty. Once ignited, this imagination autonomously frames and constructs its own image of reality. As a messenger between sensation and reason, it translates sense impressions received from the outside world into mental images, and it does not do this mechanically. Quite capable it is of playing about with sense impressions, chopping them and combining them up to images even of non-existent things. Aditi. Uh, in the next three stanzas, the the in the next three stanzas are sim. The next three stanzas are simpler, sir. Where you yourself say that queries such as yours are never answered by any divine agency. Supernatural agencies are mind bubbles of saints and philosophers, you say. In stanza 4 and 5, you also refer to your childhood experience as to how in starlight night, starlit night, you tried to connect with ghosts, spirits and angels in caves, ruins and forests reciting all kinds of incantations 
but all in vain because they weren't answers your queries were never answered and then when you lost hope in the course of a deep meditation during a cool spring dawn suddenly she appeared intellectual beauty bathing you in an exquisite and rapturous experience the way you talk about this experience my grandfather also talks about madhumati bhumika which throws yogis in a fit of ecstasy when the serpentine power hidden in our kundalini reaches the apex and excites the pituitary gland in the vortex to an extent that it starts raining amrit which quenches all kinds of desires and makes you one with what you call intellectual beauty sir shelly it's amazing that meeting you also has the special touch of that intellectual beauty which ignites not only imagination but also the deep layers of our racial memory shelly thank you dear girl you remind me of my daughter from my first marriage whom i lost when i was away lending the leading life the life of a yobagabond dreaming big dreams for the world she also was so full of queries and interesting observations aditi sorry to hear that sir we have read about your elopement with mary godwin whose frankenstein is there as a part of our gothic fiction course our teacher told us not to judge you for that because geniuses like you are a class apart and then you suffer so much for the small mistakes you make and then she you know my teacher also told us that you shared whatever little you had inherited from your grandfather with your ex-wife and was also cordial with us so we who don't hold anything against you but no one told you told us about your deep bonding with your daughter now i know why you say and talk about the gloom of loss and fleetingness so much shelly in stanza 3 i refer to life's unquest unquiet dream which is denied even a momentary glance of truth without the grace of intellectual beauty embedded in nature in stanza 4 i refer to her glorious train in which travel hope love self esteem and other positive virtues which cast a deep impact on us by nourishing us with human sympathy like darkness to a dying flame you say here again the archetype archetype of darkness as a negative force has been delicately challenged even darkness has a parental role to play in it highlights absence of light and intensifies our quest for light without which death also is like life and fear remains a dark reality all of us romantics are guided by this quest for the impossible what is nature for wordsworth is supernature for coleridge 
liberty for Byron, beauty for Keats, and love for me. These are all absolutes, perfect peaks. This quest for the perfection naturally keeps us in a state of perpetual tension and agony. Because perfection stays only in the mind. It is just an idea which I address all through in the poem as intellectual beauty. Beauty it is because it is a quest for the impossible. It is not supposed to end and so imperfect we are in all our human foibles that we can't even hold that grand idea in our head for a long time. This is what I mean when I say in the penultimate stanza, penultimate stanza, with beating heart and streaming eyes even now, I call the phantoms of a thousand hours which don't respond. Priyanshi Faiz Ahmed Faiz, one of our major Urdu poets, has a beautiful line in Urdu. Umr bhar ek mulakat chali jati hai. A single glance, a single meeting lasts a whole lifetime. Beatrice's glimpse that Dante had lasted even beyond life. You don't believe in beyondness, but see for yourself how your glimpse not only of the intellectual beauty or the idea of a utopia lasted a whole lifetime and it also walked beyond life. Your texts are all now blessed with an afterlife which keeps us all inspired, raising so many cultural parallels at, RF at every step. In stanza, in stanza 5, for instance, you refer to your vision of the intellectual beauty in the unpolluted hours of the dawn. This also rings a bell. And we are suddenly reminded of what our parents refer to as Brahma Muhurta, the pious time around 4 p.m. when all the positive energies of the universe are supposed to reach out to us with the intensity of what you refer to as intellectual beauty. At that sweet time when wind are, winds are wooing, all vital things that wake to bring news of birds and blossoming, sudden thy shadow fell on me. I shrieked and clasped my hand in ecstasy. Shelley, morning shows the day, children. What I refer to in stanza 6 as my studious zeal and love's delight kept me on a perpetual quest and ultimately flowered in this petition to intellectual beauty that she keeps all the future aspirants and seekers of harmony and bliss charged with love for all mankind. Love alone can keep us join, going and let us hope against and lets us hope against hope. Should I call it a day now? See you tomorrow for my chit chat on the other two poems, O2, The West Wind and Ozymandias.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. With the gusto of the west wind, I come from the west to discuss the second ode to Indian students. Are you all ready? I'm Shelley. You must have read the poem aloud at home, have you? It is important to read a poem aloud in private. When you read the poem aloud, you, you, your own energy level exceeds, rises up. The energy of the poem makes your elan vital rise higher and higher till you reach the apex of the music of meaning. The poem reflects. In my last conversation with you, I mentioned that the structure of an ode is that of a formal petition, where the moral authority of the higher self is addressed with passion. To request the addressee to resolve a dilemma and break the, blo- break the block, that has created the dilemma or inertia by inspiring an action plan. Everybody in this world is compelled by a psychological need to hang his or her anxieties on a peg. For believers, God is the peg to hang the anxieties on. For others, parents, friends, beloved, or any such superior force like teacher, writer, thinker, an idea in the abstract form or in the form of someone like an intellectual beauty could be that peg. For us romantics, that peg was nature. The whole panorama of nature, just one of nature or just one aspect of nature like the wind, the fire, etc. Priyanshri. In India, wind and fire are the members of a club called elements, the five elements. Shiti Jal Pavak Gagan Samira. Beyond wind and fire, which you address in the ode to the west wind and the Prometheus and Bound, we also have the elements of earth, ether and water joining hands in ruling the universe, both the macrocosm and the microcosm. Shelley, right. Before I come to the text of the poem, I shall talk a bit about the context. In my early youth, I was fascinated with all kinds of reforms and revolutions. My speculation on agricultural reform informed the key idea of this ode to the west wind. G. Thingle was my guide at that point of time. He had employed the agricultural chemistry of Humphrey Davy to model a top-down approach in agriculture. I used to have long conversations with him during my stay at his cottage 
and you will be surprised to know that the first draft of this ode was made on the same notebook in which I took down notes on agricultural chemistry. The whole idea of scattering words all over the world for them to sprout like imagined winged seeds when the time is ripe emanates from there. I seek the agency of the west wind to scatter my words for my for far and wide because my hands are too small and Byron Imaginary Dialogue with Byron Byron Good morning ladies and gentlemen this is my third day in India and I have visited many homes in Delhi one thing that i could immediately relate to is your timetable your routine routine which is as haphazard as mine ah young people in, in urban india at least follow my kind of routine their routine matches mine my days and nights were as irregular as are yours. I got get caught up at midday, breakfasted at two, spent the rest of the afternoon riding or pistol shooting or composing poetry, dined at eight and consumed the rest of the night talking to friends like Shelley or meeting with my fellow conspirators and outland outlining my plans for the liberation of mankind. As a rule, I did not go to bed till six o'clock in the morning, quite like you, dear boys and girls. Students giggle. Byron. I lived as I rode, with a passionate and breathless rapidity, and rarely corrected my work. Akansha. Yes, Lord Byron. We have read your letters. In one of your letters, you do confess. I can never recast anything. I am like a tiger. If I miss the first spring, I go grumbling back to my jungle. But if I do so, it is crushing. We marvel this confidence, Sir Byron. We don't have that. We marvel the way you crushed the conventions of the public, lunch at their prejudices and their superstitions, and almost shocked them into buying your books and blushing at their contents, and then buying them for their friends, Priyanshi. But behind all this, you also had a lonely heart. Though you won't give a damn to it, but somehow, you have invoked my mother instinct and I feel very protective towards you. When I read your biographies and learn how thoroughly misunderstood you had always been. Even your mother called you a lame brat. Your wife couldn't take your jokes. Though you had a series of lady admirers and many affairs boosting your morale and ego all the time, the only people who understood you thoroughly were Shelley and Ada, your daughter, whom you hardly met because your separated wife considered you a bad influence on her. 
fighting for the liberation of Greece, when you fell dead in Turkey, what exactly were you thinking? Byron, oh dear girl, you know it all. Then you must be knowing this too, that we romantics upheld Greek civilization as a great model because our own civilization did not have such a rich store of racial memories. We looked up only to the Greece and Rome as a great storehouse, not only of great ideas, but also great mythological constructs which all poets need to build upon their own visions. <sighs> need to build upon their own visions. But the Greece we had held in our dreams and the Greece I saw when I st started living there were worlds apart. I laid down my life because I wished to lay down my life for a great cause. But by the time I died, it was pretty clear to me that even when liberated, the Greeks would, be, would take centuries in rising to their higher selves. So before I closed my eyes, I was really heartbroken. I had a feeling that as day-old corpse that appears in the repose of sleep, and has not yet completely succumbed to the ravages of decay, Greece maintained her formal parad paradisal beauty in statues, books and urns, but hardly did her people hold manners of formal heroes. The degenerate process of history had blasted all the grandeur away. That's why all my invocations sounded like a rhetorical nonsense and much before I got that fever which relieved me of life, I had learned to be quiet. Asta, but your life and your poetry keep us inspired even now, Sir Byron. Such a magnanimous, magnanimous soul you had that the Hebrews exiled from their homeland became directly associated in your mind with the general idea of man's fall from paradise. The story of the oppressed Jews symbolized the larger issue of migration haunting the world even today. And where shall Israel lay her bleeding feet? And when shall lion's songs again seem sweet? And Judah's melody once more rejoice, The hearts that leap, leap, leaped before the heaven's voice. The quotations you asked, the questions you asked, In the harp the monarch mistral swept, Go unanswered even today. The wild dove, her nest, the fox, his cave, mankind, their country, Israel, but grave. Israel or Palestine or any such country facing the refugee crisis today are sure to be cut to the quick when they read these moving lines. Arun. Oh, sir, you are truly global and cosmopolitan in our sense of the term. 
Could we talk a bit about Child Harold's pilgrimage now? Is Harold an objective correlative of your own deep uncertainty of mind, whose in ultimate merger with the poet in Canto 3 and 4 looks so astonishing? Byron, yes, both Harold and Don Juan are a complex Byron in search of self-definition. I, like Shelley, was born in a wrong class. Even one glance at a Jane Austen novel provides you a brilliantly convincing evidence of the painful world of the gentry from 1792 to 1822. In order to retain one's status as a gentleman a lord or a lady, one couldn't seek employment anywhere, at civil employment at least. One couldn't choose to work a living. All that one could do is to wait desperately either for inheriting money or for marrying in the right family. Books were the only relief because relationships were mostly hollow. A strange kind of void surrounded me whenever I tried creating a bond. My tongue was caustic and I could easily unarm people with scathy comments. My eyes could easily penetrate the masks. Everything was so predictable in most of the moves around me that easily I lost interest in the immediate surroundings and changed looking beyond. That's why I spent most of my life traveling like Child Harold, who was so vulnerable, as vulnerable as me. Because I did not have any good company beyond Shelley and Saudi, who were busy in their own ways, I created that this alter ego in Child Harold to keep, com- keep company of my lonely self and set him on a voyage which I call pilgrimage with a tongue-in-cheek. He saw places, met people, not in the, but not in the vein of a pilgrim. The failure of his pilgrimage had cast him in a frame as melancholic as mine. On my way back after each way back home after each voyage, I also used to be so desolate. One of my letters to Francis Hodgan bears an evidence to that, where I confess that I was an, a solitary, as solitary without, I was solitary without the wish to be social, with a body a little enfeebled by a succession of fever, but a spirit I trust yet unbroken. I am returning home without hope, without desire. To tell you the truth, I was born not only in a wrong family, but also at a wrong time. I bore a modern mind like yours, but too confused and reluctant I was to make a clear mark in my pronouncements. My intended pilgrimage of life had failed utterly except in the sense that it had revealed the futility and the irrelevance of traditional pilgrimage in a modern world. Some critic has rightly commented, 
that mine was a case of isolated modernism, which I did not have the ability, let alone the vocabulary, to understand at that point of time. You could at best call me, call it the drawing of a modern sensibility. Child Harold serves his purpose in bringing me to a crisis point in the history of my consciousness, a point of ethical disintegration and personal isolation. Well, that should be sufficient for getting the context right. Let's now come straight to the canto 3 and 4, whose distinct feature is that my attitude towards nature goes a sea change here. Arun Hauka, Byron. When we were in Switzerland, Shelley used to doze me with Wordsworth's metaphysics, which I didn't quite relish. But then, when I reread Wordsworth, I could make some sense of that pantheistic oneness with the world and even the universe. That obliteration of self in face of the topographical sublime also made some sense at that point of time. At that point of time, I was writing those cantos, and I must confess, despite my repeated insistence on Harold's solitude, there emerged a possibility of rekindling a relationship with the family of man in the form of of the realization of the realistically pastoral inhabitants of Rhine Valley and the Alps. Wordsworth's poetry did show there is no better antidote to a life or solitary of a solitary man than pantheistic identification with nature. At that point of time, I also felt like repeopling, repeopling Harold's solitude with something more reliable and accessible than the humans could not humans he could not or would not identify with in his exile and after the lengthy digression on napoleon emerged nature as a great maternal energy in chapter in canto 3 true wisdom's world will be within its own creation or in thine Maternal nature for who teems like thee, thus on the banks of the majestic Rhine. There Harold gazes on a work divine. This evokes the most affirmative comment on the potential power of nature to replace the human family in his consciousness. Are not the mountains, waves, and skies apart? of me and of my soul as now a quick summing up shelley 1792 1822 as an unacknowledged legislator of the world shelley espoused a whole range of worthy causes from irish nationalism to vegetarianism his radicalism was more than both reaction against the conservative triumphalism which marked post 
Napoleon ek Europe and an instinctive rejection of the restrictive political, religious and moral formulae of his aristocratic English background. The Mask of Anarchy 1819 marks his disgust with the so-called Peterloo massacre earlier in Queen Mab a philosophical poem 1813 he had molded the fairy's midwife the dream maker of mercutio's speech in shakespeare's Ju- romeo and juliet into the midwife of a broader revolutionary dream and the instructor of the soul of iron into the principle of principles of historic change kings priests and statements blast the human flower society consoled by the purgation of the historic oppression oppressors oppressors and the human spirit freed from the taint of a despotic tradition is finally allowed to see the prospect of following the gradual paths of an aspiring change the revolt of islam 18 18 In the Revolt of Islam 1818 he describes the doomed but heroic struggle for liberation of a brother and a sister against the manifold oppressions of the Ottoman Empire here even the declared defeated and immolated revolutionaries take on the posthumous role of inspiring a continuing and multilateral struggle in Prometheus Unbound 1820 and Hellas 1822 Shelley plays with archetypes and with a syncretic mythological system of means by means of which he dramatizes the revolutionary process the growth of altruism inspired by love is the key idea in most of his poems both the intellectual beauty and liberty are his god substitutes a life enhancing force that exalts beauty transmutes all it changes touches <clears throat> transmutes all it touches and tells the truth by stripping the veil of familiarity from the world laying bare the naked and sleeping beauty which is the spirit of all flames spirit of all forms keats keats is the most sensuous and polyphonic of the romantic poets His poetry thickly layered with echoes images and characters derived from the Greek mythology has a marvelous sense of the particular and an acute susceptibility for forms even in his personal life he had a strong almost an intrusive sense of the identity of others so that when i am in a room with people The identity of everyone in the room begins uh, so to press upon me that I am in a very little time annihilated. <clears throat> And this plasticity was not limited to human beings. <clears throat> If a sparrow comes before my window, I take part in its existence and pick about the gravel. I lay awake last night listening to the rain with a sense of being drawn and rotten like a grain of wheat the sensitive openness to others is what he calls negative capability of a poet 
the capacity of a man of character of being in uncertainties mysteries doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason in this same letter of 1818 he famously remarks that what shocks the virtuous philosophers delights the chamelian poet the nature of this particular chamelian lay for keats in his ability to assimilate impressions identify with external objects both animate and inanimate what makes him remarkable as a poet is his dedicated absorption and adoption of stimuli through a process of intense intellectualization which ignites a simultaneous and objective self-analysis the ode to Na- nightingale takes as its subject the local presence of a nightingale and the contrast of the full treated throated ease of its singing with the aching numbness of the human observer the rapt and the meditative poet the ode progressive through progresses through a series of precisely delicate evocations of op- opposed moods and ways of seeing some elated some depressed but each serving to return the narrator to the to his soul self and to his awareness of temporal suffering which the bird's song has offered in ode to autumn 1819 the tensions of positions and conflicting emotions are diminished amid a series of sense impressions of a season whose bounty contains both fulfillment and incipient decay both an intensification of life and an inevitable but natural process of aging and dying human life for him is a veil of a soul where we school our intelligence and discipline oneself through a rich spectrum of the experience of binaries he somehow arrives at the, his conclusion but holds them tentatively and fluidly here we can actually chart out what lacan in his in the later centuries would have called identities in progress on the whole in his dense poems we sense a rich fund of experience examined and weighed by a scrupulously just and delicately balanced mind as ripe and mellow as full of clammy calls for fume of poppies and the last oozing as autumn him itself byron informed and punctuated as much by nature as by public life and recent history british politics and the feverish european nationalisms stirred by the french revolution byron's poetry is the most global in the sense that it ranges its in its geographical geographical settings from russia to the mediterranean from portugal to the levant and also because rapidly it moves between different modes of narration from the self-explorative to the polemic from the melancholic to the comic from the mock heroic to the passionately amorous from the song to the epic andrew sanders comments byron the libertarian and byron the libertine readily assumed the public role of a commentator 
on his times because he both relished the, his fame and enjoyed the later romantic pose of being at odds with established society but had this been just a pose he would not have died for a cause fighting for the greeks against the turkish invasion in his letters and journals we meet a byron who is impulsive and exuberant humorous and observant liable to moods of profound dejection from which he seeks relief in violent excitement enamored of action proud and spirited in his hatred of oppression in the best of his verse and prose he voices the insights of a dissolution though not misanthropic man of the world with a zest and a vitality which is which in the words of jd jump are more welcome today in direct proportion to their rarity among our defeatists waiting for a godo young intrepid moody a man of loneliness and mystery that dazzles lens yet chills the vulgar heart byron became the hero of his own poems the byronic hero equally capable of rapture or cynicism first appeared in child's child harold's pilgrimage written in spenserian stanzas during a trip to albania greece and new east popular and famous as he became for his narrative and travel poetry his real genius lay in verse satire and his masterpieces don juan and unfinished verse satire in ottava rima a picaresque novel in verse a poor popery of matters and styles all things for all moods the hero is a libertine whose who in spanish legend ended by being dragged off like marlowe's dr fastus to hell byron's hero in both child harold and don juan is not a satiric but a victim of social corruption who embodies byron's most serious criticism of life adventures allow him much latitude sharp satire and witty mockery cynical description of love hope and pathos grandly heroic realistic and ironic burlesque imitation of classic myths and ordinary conversations are used for comical effect of the great magnitude the prescribed cantos present a checkered graph of his love hate relationship with napoleon in the early part of his life so admired byron so admired napoleon for his guts to rise against monarchy that he traveled to europe in a carriage that was exactly like napoleon's and called napoleon his pagod like many others he was disillusioned when he himself became an emperor but finally when napoleon was defeated he did not share the genial rejoicing in england and decided to judge him impartially in the prescribed cantos he sincerely wished monarchies to vanish and in a judicious assessment of what napoleon's defeat me- meant he concluded that the monarchies even in the accident monarch 
is a sad fact of history. Byron was a soldier of peace. Although he hated the savaging of war, he believed that war and political system, which gave rise to England, could only be eliminated by war. In lines 42 to 45, by linking quiet with quick, alliteratively, Byron establishes in oxymoronic relationship with life and the power of an energetic life comes through in the rush of run-on lines. There is a fire and motion of the soul which will not dwell in its own narrow being but aspire beyond the fitting medium of desire. But too much of quick fire leads to praise Fever and fatal diseases, superfluous energy is in men like Napoleon and Prometheus star souls, secret springs. But if they get selfish and autocratic, fire returns in a new form, as flame and fed, which runs to waste with its own flickering. It leads men like Napoleon to mountain tops, from where they must look down on the hate of those below and live with the icy loneliness of having surpassed mankind. Byron's cosmopolitan mind, his respect for other cultures and societies, and his contempt for monarchy is what gets us really close to him. Good day. Hello, Keats. Keats, hello, friends. It is easy for the middle class urban youth in India. To relate to my circumstances in London of my times, I was so as penniless and lonely in the big city as you, and my family liabilities also were similar. In the city of great opportunities, I often spent my evenings in dining rooms of scholars and libraries of friends. Sometimes even the gatherings at the library club discussing books and issues at length. I knew I would die any day. I had started spitting blood by then. So it was important not to waste a single moment and make the best of life. Cleave at least, leave at least a few immor- immortal texts behind, which even my worst critics could not frown at. Class, oh dear kids, we all find not only your poems but also your letters so moving. We read them again and again. In the bluest of moments for inspiration and strength. Keats, thank you, my young friends, my friends, 
my friend Shelley has already given you some perspective on my basic notion of beauty, time and sublimity. You could straight away come to the poems you were, you were supposed to discuss in the class. Ode to Autumn, Ode to the Nightingale and the sonnet called On First Looking into Chapman's Homer. What do you like about the first ode? Tell me. Aditi. The personification of autumn as an old prompt fellow working in the orchard with the sincerity of an old family associate. This image is so dear to my heart, sir. I am reminded of someone like Mahadevi Verma's Rama at my ancestral home. No one has left behind such sensuous portraits, dear kids, of old workers of the kind we still find in our fields. Sitting carelessly on a granny floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep. Drowsed with the fume of poppy. But such is the their level of commitment that despite this drowsiness, they are particular about that at the cider press, fruits and are squeezed till the last drop. Not a drop is wasted. I have seen many such workers in my own ancestral fields. Their level of commitments makes them all a dear family friend. Most of us who hail from a farmer's family enjoy your work like anything. The second image of a bosom friend conspiring with him how to look, load and bless is another very familiar and heartwarming image so true to life. Harvest time in villages is still a time of rare festivities. It's the time when many important decisions are taken, jointly taken, never single-handedly, always in close consultation with an old friend. You call Autumn the bosom friend of maturing sun, and that reminds one, me of my grandfather and his old friend of 60 years, who never take a step without consulting each other, and almost all their plans are jointly implemented too. Autumn and the maturing sun jointly bless the wine with grapes and letting the branches bend with weight of apples, plumping the hazelnut with a sweet kernel for more and more bees to draw closer. Autumn and the maturing sun come together at the right, mom right moment. Ripeness is a familiar theme in you, I suppose. Keats. 
Yes, dear, I always knew I will die unripe, much before time. So ripeness became a recurrent theme in me. In the Hyperion too, chaos ceases when the moment is ripe. Ripeness is a familiar facet of my theme of time. In my view, time itself is a manifestation of wisdom, of order on the wider scale, a means of organizing the world and its event. This moment of ripeness, ripeness of full realization of the potential is now not to be achieved without some suffering, a point implied in the phrase the pain of truth. My concept of ripeness is also a paradox. Is ripeness a matter of choice and action, that is of free will, or is it simply a matter of time, or mere waiting for the moment to arrive? In nature, the law of progressive evolution works at its own sweet will, and in society, the law of force is applied. Plants quietly wait for the right season. Asta. Yes, a couplet of Kabir reasserts this. Keats. Ripeness is all, says Shakespeare. But this then ripeness precedes fall. And the third and the last stanza of the Ode to Autumn prepares us for that. It prepares us for the soft dying day when after the harvest only the stubbles will be there in the fields. The songs of spring would be soon followed by the wailful choir of all kinds of birds and insects. The light wind too will sink the full-grown lamb will be will bleat loudly before it is slowly carried away to the slaughterhouse. Priyanshi. Ode to Nightingale, too, swings between binaries of life and death, ecstasy and agony, light and darkness, time and timelessness. Isn't it, sir? Keats. Yes, the world of the nightingale is also a world of world characterized by the mystery of darkness from which emerge all kinds of sight and sounds, smells and the sense of touch and taste. This darkness is replete with shadows numberless. So, one can only guess what scent emanates from which flower. The flowers are not actually seen in the darkness. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the bars. A light wind blowing across and, and, and rose gloom, gloom, glooms and widening messy ways. In many of my early poems too, the ones like I stood tiptoe upon the little hill, you will encounter the image of the woven bower of bliss casting a dark shadow. But darkness is here not gloomy. Glass darkness here is not gloomy. 
It is a center for calm and escape from the clamor and demands of the everyday urban world. This is where the nightingale is seated, hidden behind the leaves. Respectfully, I address her as darkling. And you can easily see for yourself or hear for yourself how closely this darkling is associated with the word darling. She comes alive with, with her. She comes alive, and with her, the darkness itself sinks soft across time. She comes alive spirit, spiritually and morally to refresh the mind and the body. Yet. For me, it is also the point where I become energized to catch art, create art. This tranquility induces a form of sacred silence in which our creative energy can be tellingly released. Arun, when did you write this poem, dear Keats? Keats, a day before its first draft, I had written in my notebook. There is nothing like fine weather, and health, and books, and a fine country, and a contented mind, and please heaven, a bottle of claret wine, cool and out of a cellar much deep. I was slowly recovering from the trauma of my brother's death. We were at a friend's play. I out in the garden, Fanny Brown, bare in the hall tense with the feeling that someday I too will drop dead like my little brother. There was some kind of tension in the air. We suddenly got resolved when this nightingale sang from the other end of history and time as it were. You can see for yourself how the poem vacillates continually between two conditions, release from the recoil to mortal reality of bird, of mortal reality. The bird is immortal in the sense of countless generations achieving a kind of seamless permanence. The concept of generations of the same bird of seamless permanence transcends the narrow transient mortality of a single life. Memory is the function of time passing and as such is a person's storehouse of life's fears and fret, fevers and fret. This concept lies at the very heart of the veil of soul making hand in hand in with the defiant optimism of line 61 where i say that the nightingale eludes death and the pangs of human mortality then comes the reality of the sad heart of ruth personifying sorrow the nightingale thus assimilates symbolically both the peak of human ecstasy and the peak of human despair. Here I reaffirm my characteristic theme that to become fully human is the consequence of a complex yet vulnerable sensitivity of the world. 
like the grecian urn the song of the nightingale signifies the ideal work of the romantic imagination a voice so exquisite that it becomes almost supernatural in contrast with the human fumblings suggested in words like numbness dull pale dull brain as sad silk sick fall down the body's senses are the casement of the imagination and the pathway for desire imagination stimulates desire to experience the other world and to become alive become like the sylvan warbler itself a quintessence of mind or spirit in full throated ease this spiritual or creative refining not merely demise itself is what i desire when i talk of being half in love with easeful death to progress from body and sense to a higher plane to a world of ideas ignited by imagination i would lead the world unseen and so coexist with the essence of things into this world of spirit this is to this is this the tune i was setting in my mind aditi and your dream has actually come true dear kids you are one with us and among the spirits of the higher world all at once now i see why after a relatively lucid opening the perspectives of the poem modulates repeatedly dissolving and jollying back jollying back into some order of reality unless the senses become forlorn and uncertain lucidly the ode progresses a momentary doub- doubting of your power trust former trust in empiricism keats yes both the urn and the song serve as a mysterious loophole in time providing subtle revelation on tiptoe between the two dimensions of time human time fixed temporary and the sacred time permanent time this is how gradually the thing of beauty becomes a quintessential work of art which transcends time goes beyond time as a symbol of symbol to speak to us in a quasi religious or philosophical mood melancholic mood which is my ode to which in my ode to melancholy i address as the bride of quietness and the foster child of silence a whole series of moments come together in it the moments of the urns urns creation or the birds ancient notes in the times of emperors or of root plus many others compressed into the poem's instant or moment of being as a cheat as a cheating fragile glimpse of reality moreover it encapsulates the duality of tomb and the womb priyanshi 
one thing I have noticed whenever you talk of all of ale or liquor you refer to a cellar where it has been kept buried for years together is this cellar also suggestive of a grave Keats I am so happy you guessed it buried deep in the grave of time doesn't deny the possibility of reservation buried deep in the grave of time the ale of my life also could emerge cooler and tastier what else can a dying man hope for arun no pain no gain isn't it sir keats yes pain has a great role to play in self generation for the ale of life to be not wholly unpleasant to the palatable to the palate fine it must be buried deep in the melancholic oblivion for years together as i reiterate in my ode to melancholy no melancholy reduces human action to a deep passive contemplation in which feelings and responses are reformed and exacted in the action we cannot in the world of action we cannot expect to devote many hours to pleasure pain and pleasure emerge as some kind of a siamese twin twins while we are laughing the seed of some trouble is put into the wide arable land of events while we are laughing it grows and suddenly bears a fruit of poison thus simultaneously is simultaneity's life and acceptance of this great fact of life is the only way out of a perpetual strain i think this is the right time to stop and let you ponder shreyasi just one last word on chapman's homer sir our teacher was telling us that this point should be included in every book of translations